0: Welcome
2: to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 111. Today on the show, we're joined by Whitetail Properties Land Specialist and Whitetail Habitat Consultant Jake Elinger to talk about micromanaging small properties for big deer. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. Today, we've got a terrific guest, someone who's actually nearly my neighbor as he hails from South Central Michigan, and he's someone who's got a vast amount of whitetail knowledge to share, and that's Jake Ellinger. He is a whitetail habitat consultant and currently is a land specialist for whitetail properties, and he's definitely an expert on all things related to hunting whitetails in heavily pressured areas and managing small properties to make that possible. And so that's exactly what we're going to talk to Jake about today. You know exactly how to manage a small property in a situation kind of like what I have in Michigan or a lot of other people I'm sure they're listening. You know, how do we do that? How do we hold and hunt big mature bucks in situations like that? So that's the game plan for the next hour, hour and a half, however long this runs. Dan, what do you think about that plan? I like it. You like it? I
3: like it. I I always like talking about deer hunting and management and property and all that good stuff.
2: I agree. It's uh it, it, I I don't know. I've found some level of fascination with like every different type of scenario for deer hunting. Like I love the idea, idea of like how do you micromanage a tiny property with habitat improvements and stuff, but I also I'm like really intrigued with like how do you hunt big public land parcels out in the far west or something like that, and I'm interested in how do I you know try to figure out big properties of private land versus small properties of private land. all the, all the different types of scenarios and ways you can kill and hunt whitetails. There's something kind of cool about all of them. So What's how was your- you though? Oh, oh, not too much.
3: Um, I accidentally ate dog food Monday. How do
2: you accidentally eat dog food
3: well you know some of these gourmet dog foods have uh like the cover on them They kind of looks like a beef stew type of deal and so for some reason my wife decided to get this gourmet <laughs> dog food and i came home and i was in a hurry because i had to record a, record a podcast and all of a sudden you know, I, I I pull this can out. I look at it, and it on the front cover is like rice and beef and carrots. And I was like, Oh, well, that kind of looks good." So I I didn't, you know, real fast put it in the. There's no way this is real. There's this, no way this is real. This is real, Mark. This is real. This have, have you ever this been? Is, this is your real life. That that well, it was on Monday. <laughs> So I I, oh. I I scoop it out. You know, I'm in a hurry because I'm a little behind. So I scoop it out. I'm like, okay, I got to stuff my face because I haven't eaten anything all day. Throw it into the microwave. Turn it on. And I pull it out. And I'm like, hmm, well, you know, maybe it's just a cheapo brand. So I put a spoon in it, put a little bite in my mouth. And I'm like, that doesn't taste like beef stew. So I look back at the can <laughs> and it said Pur- Purina on it. <laughs> and And uh, so that was the last time I I ate dog food.
2: (laughs) Dude, you realize that there are so many people listening right now that they have serious questions about your ability to read, to reason, to function as an adult. Well, also, this this even blows my mind. Well, I tell you what, first
3: off, I'm not proud of it, right? Second off, (laughs) you add, you add two kids into the equation of your life and your mind disappears. Like you're you are so scatterbrained all over the place that, you know, sometimes you accidentally eat dog food. Dude,
2: I'll tell you what, this is a clear indication of your state of well-being right now I'd say like I think all of us need to be a little concerned about your (laughs) well-being if you're at the point where you're accidentally eating gourmet dog food and I guess this would give you you've, you've got a free pass Dan now for the rest of the next couple months at least if things are so rough right now that you're eating dog food by accident if you if you forget to check a trail camera or if you hang a bad tree stand don't worry about it. You, it's understandable. <laughs>
3: well, that's, that stuff's important. All right. Like eating, accidentally eating dog food really is you know, like, oh, oh no, I accidentally ate dog food. Now, if I put the stand in the wrong spot or forget to turn the trail camera on, that's a big deal. That's more, that has bigger repercussions than accidentally eating dog food. I suppose so. What did you tell your wife about this? Uh, no, I didn't. So really, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a little embarrassing. The only thing I asked her to do is, hey, can you do just me a little? A, yeah. Hey, can you do me a favor and not put the dog food, the gourmet dog food next to the serving size canned food items that we have in there? She's like, I go, it could be it could be a little, you know, mistaken. And then she's like, why? And then I didn't say anything.
2: So. <laughs> How, how would you describe the taste real quickly here? Mm, like kind of like dog food. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that I can't relate to that. I am yeah, not sure know. what That means you know, like I've never eaten dog food.
3: I know. I mean, it had kind of a, a beefy taste to it, you know. But, you know, I wouldn't go I wasn't going in for a second, a second scoop, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it does. So I'm going to do you a favor here. I'm going to move on from this topic.
3: <laughs> hey, I want to talk real quick about uh, scouting in Montana. Have you seen anything uh,
2: else while you've been out scouting? Mm, I do have some quick updates on that. Great, uh, great topic to bring up, actually, because just yesterday I called the, the fishing game agency here trying to get some information about some of these public land areas that, uh, well, they're private land that's open to public hunting through their walk-in hunting program here in Montana. And yep. basically, you know, I've been, I've had some maps I'm looking at that show these properties. And so I was targeting a handful of these properties that I've been trying to start to scout from the road and stuff. And I was going to try to, you know, get on them and walk around to try to figure them out a little bit before I come back and hunt. So I call them to ask a couple questions about, you know, how do I go about doing that? Can I just show up or do yep. I need to just sign in or something? And this person, um, just was really short with me, and just did not seem to be in a good mood. And um, you know, they just basically said that ah, you can't do anything like that. The new the new property listing, blah blah, doesn't come out till mid August. And every time I had a question about anything additional, they just said that. Well, you gotta wait till August fifteenth. Um, so I got completely shut down, and I just kind of like was stammering on the phone for like thirty seconds. I didn't even know how to handle this uh, response yeah. I got but long story short i was bummed out about that because now yeah. well what properties I, I I have no idea where i can hunt because they can't confirm whether or not these properties are open to the public or not so i can't go scout i can't do anything like that um so last night i'm like well, what the heck am i gonna do i started thinking you know should i just start knocking on doors try to get private permission somewhere Um, these are all things I was starting to think about last night, but I thought, you know, I'm going to go for a drive in this general region again and just try it again, get a better idea of where the, you know, where the deer are, where some of these better bucks might be. And two good things happened. Number one, um, I saw five shooters. I saw some really nice bucks, probably in the 130 to 140 class, I'd say. Um, So some definitely mature deer in the general area that I'm looking, which is encouraging. And then the second thing that was – a bit serendipitous would be that as I was riding back from this deer drive, well, one, I saw a black bear, which is cool. He came around across the road. And then number two, as I'm driving back from my drive, there's a truck and trailer off the side of the road. And they wave me down, I pull over, and they've got a flat tire. So I end up helping these folks um, get back to their house, try to get a jack and all that kind of stuff. And after, you know, chit-chatting and stuff and helping them along, they mentioned that they own a bunch of land in the area and that I'd be welcome. lucky,
3: lucky son of a gun.
2: Yeah. And they said, I'd be welcome to hunt it. So, um, you know, that isn't for sure. For sure. You know, I've got to you know, follow up on it and everything, but based on this, uh, this, uh, encounter last night some really nice people Um, I might have a place to hunt so very lucky I've never had that happen before Um, you always hear these stories about getting lucky like that and running across someone who happens to have a place you can hunt and uh, finally happened to me so (laughs) I'm not complaining
3: I had a friend who was had a a situation like that he headed over to Illinois to do a quick scout um, like a I don't know a quick scouting because he wanted to go hunt in Illinois and he was looking around. So all this property in this area that he was looking around had been leased and uh, leased by outfitters and like I guess some notable outfitters that have a like do really good at management. We're talking you know several Boone and Crockett deer every year. And uh, so he's driving down the road and he sees this lawnmower on its side in a ditch. Well. Luckily the guy riding it was not hurt but he ended up helping this guy tip a lawnmower back on and help him drive it out of this ditch and uh, this guy owned like 25 30 acres and then that's how this guy he's like hey man I see you got all these bow hunting stickers on your truck you bow hunt and uh, the guy's like yeah I'm lo- I'm actually down here looking for you know places to hunt he goes you're more than welcome to hunt my place and it was just an overgrown an overgrown pasture or that hadn't had cows in it for like 30 years. So he puts a trail camera up and just like, I think three Boone and Crockett deer were making their way through that, through that area in between these two bigger chunks oh my gosh. of timber. So he, he got real lucky.
2: Yeah. That's awesome. It, it, it uh, you shouldn't do good things to try to get a, a nice, uh, reward, but every once in a while it's, it's kind of neat that uh, karma comes around I suppose. Right. That's right. That's right. So you got to start doing nice things for people, Dan.
3: I do nice things for people every single day. I know it. I'm kidding. I open doors for people. I tell random strangers, hey, like things like, hey, you got some nice teeth in your mouth. You you have literally said that to somebody. No, I've never said that. But you know, that's almost, one thing people don't comment comment a lot
2: on is teeth. <laughs> that's true. Maybe you could make it's somebody's like, hey, man,
3: you got some good teeth.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking that this we're we're really quickly about to get side railed. <laughs> so I'm gonna, gonna say, drop
3: some sponsors here pretty soon if we
2: don't if we don't
3: uh, get the guest on the line. Yeah.
2: So we we've covered dog food, we've covered Montana Scouting, we've covered compliments. So I think that's a great place to end this intro. <laughs> And we're going take we're going to take a quick break <laughs> for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear and I'm actually in their basement again recording as I told you a second ago and uh, we'll take a word to hear from Sitka, and then we'll give Jake a call. So, we do want to give a big thank you to Sika Gear for their support of this podcast. You know, they've contributed in a lot of ways that helped us keep this show on the air, most notably at the moment by letting me record here. And today, I want to mention briefly one of their new pieces for 2016, and that's the Fanatic Light Bibs. Now these are similar in form and function to the original Fanatic Bibs, which I love, but the big difference here is that While the originals were super insulated for those long, cold, you know, November or late season days, these Fanatic lights, they offer a much thinner gridded fleece insulation, which is going to make these perfect for those early to mid-season sits. And what's super nice about it is if you layer some kind of insulation underneath, you could probably rock these right into the later parts of the year. So it's a very versatile lower body piece and something that I know I'm going to be wearing a lot this year. Uh, In addition to all that, the Fanatic Lights have got great hand warmer pockets and full two-way zips that go up and down the pant legs, allowing you to vent when you're walking to keep you from sweating when you're going in and out of stands, uh, or just make it easy to get them on and off, maybe before a hunt, after a hunt, whatever it might be. So I'm excited to try these this year, and if you would like to learn more, you can visit SitkaGear.com. And now, let's get back to the show. With us now on the line is Jake Elinger, I screwed it up last time. Sorry, Jake. Welcome to the show.
4: Hey, uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, great to be on the show with you, and yeah. uh, good to uh, be with Dan as well.
2: Absolutely. Well, we're we're excited to chat and. You know, this is one episode where we occasionally have these episodes. We had one a couple weeks ago where where me or Dan or both of us are selfishly particularly interested with our guests because we think they can really help us. And I think you can really help me because we have very similar scenarios. You know, we're right down there in South Central Michigan hunting similar properties and um, similar types of areas at least. So I'm looking forward to picking your brain about how you've had so much success here in Michigan, and I think a lot of other people will be able to have some things they can learn from you, too. But I suppose before we get too far into that, Jake, you know, I I don't know if you knew this, but I actually first heard about you from my friend Corey. Dan, you, you know Corey. Um, yes, I do. And Corey had told me about this guy who he used to bring his antlers to to get Euro-mounted. And he told me about this guy, Jake, that lives down in such and such area. And he'd brought some antlers over. And he remembered once, it was either, I think, your house or your barn or something. You'd brought him out there back. And you looked out over the back of this building down into this lush food plot. And he told me, oh, man, this is just the coolest place, this beautiful food plot and all these deer coming out. he's like, that guy really knew what he was doing. And so ever since then, I was like, I need to meet Jake. And so since then, you know, we've been able to meet. We've been able to chat. And um it's been really great getting to know you and learn from you. But for those who who don't have that background with you, Jake, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do, what's your background and and what you're doing today related to deer and and whitetail habitat?
4: Sure, sure, Mark. Um, I started a business, uh, Habitat Solutions 360, about 14, 15 years ago. Um, And my goal at that time was to try and help the small landowner who had lived all the uh, trials and tribulations that I have is in wanting to hunt bigger and better deer, hunting in southern Michigan, high pressure, uh, with non-cooperative neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to kind of sum it up. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so, I spent a lot of years uh, young in my life learning everything I could about white-tailed deer, and I was lucky to have permission probably when I was in my early to late teens, to hunt on a really nice property in Hillsdale County. And I'm just one of those guys that notices everything. And and the thing that stuck in my head was the diversity, uh, the different types of cover, the different types of cover that deer used at different types of the year, food sources, uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, when I was in my early 30s, my wife and I were lucky enough to buy uh, a 67-and-three-quarter-acre farm here in Lenawee County. And and from the day we closed on it, I came out here and I started making changes immediately, from planting trees to uh, trying to increase uh, the cover, uh, trying to figure out where the deer were bedding, if there was any bedding, and those types of things. So uh, over the years, uh, my background has always been, uh, prior to this business, I was a mechanical engineer in the high-speed automation business in the Detroit automotive world. So I'm a real detail oriented guy, a lot of drafting and engineering uh type of thought processes. So when I built this business, I thought, well, why can't I do this just like I did all my proposal work when I was an engineer? So I put the plans together basically, uh started out with written plans, very detailed written plans, and then my design layouts that I do of the property itself, I I, I take the satellite photo and I reproduce that in a hand drawing. And I draw the kind of detail that a lot of people in this business won't do. And I, and I break it right down into, you know, every screening, uh, you know, every bedding area, the separation of does and bucks and that sort of thing, stand locations, entry and exit strategies, really get into a lot of detail. Uh, it's a, you know, it's just been a blast uh, to be a part of and grow this business. The, the Achilles heel is the amount of time and detail it takes out of me to provide that kind of service, so I can only help so many people a year. And uh, through the, through this business, I became associated with the people that uh, own Whitetail Properties about four years ago. Uh, they saw some of my YouTube videos, were really uh, intrigued with what I was doing, and asked me to come help them with some of their Illinois and Missouri properties. And uh, through that relationship, really got to know the guys, and they asked if they could uh, film some of the techniques i do and put it on their hunting show which i had no problem doing and uh they said geez you know you know land so well you're so good with people you're so passionate about what you're doing we're thinking about opening up michigan uh as you know another one of their states to put land specialists into to to, uh, sell hunting lands and farms so they offered me the opportunity to to uh Worked directly with them, representing the company as a land specialist, and Whitetail Properties has come into Michigan about a year ago, just about this time last year. And uh, so I went ahead and got my uh, my real estate training, took the test, passed the test, and now I'm a uh, land specialist for Whitetail Properties Real Estate as well. And it's such a good, you know, it's, it's, both businesses benefit one another. You know, the... the uh, properties that i do designs on uh and help the hunters you know they're saying geez do you know of any property for sale or geez you know you did such a good job on my property i've killed some great bucks but i'd like to take this 40 acres and turn it into a hundred do you know of any properties in the area to sell so it's working out really good as a companion uh, business wow so uh, that's pretty much how i got to where i'm at today
2: that sounds like a pretty fun gig I got to believe there's a lot of of fun times out there on those properties, whether you're selling them or managing and improving them or just talking to people about them.
4: You know, it really is, Mark. Um, I've been blessed to be able to see so many different properties, so many different habitats that deer use. And, you know, be that the urban environment, the deep woods, uh, the Midwest, you know, deep ravines are just... uh, what we'll call billiard table flatland that you would see in certain parts of uh, central Michigan and uh, central Ohio and Illinois, Uh, you know, and so deer are deer. They all react in similar uh, situations, but depending on topography, you're going to do a a habitat plan a little bit different, you know. Uh, So, yeah, I I take everything I learn from each property, and at this point I think I've been to just under 600 properties in the last 14 years. Wow. And so that is a heck of a lot of data I can throw into my brain to uh, help out the next guy that calls me and wants me to uh, do a plan for him.
2: Yeah. So, so what I kind of want to do, what I'm hoping we can do, is I'm hoping we can kind of mine all of that data that you've accumulated to help each of us as individuals better look at our own properties or our own situation and apply some of these things you've learned, hopefully. And I thought it might be interesting if you're willing to share um, Taking a look at your own property, or at least the property um, that I've that I've read about in the past, that I know you've done some work on. I'm not sure if that's still the same one, um, but but that 67 and a half acres or whatever is that still the farm that you hunt the most or manage the most of your yeah. own?
4: Yeah, yeah, oh, it is. It's uh, it's the only farm I hunt in Michigan. Uh, you know, one of the you know you can travel throughout the Midwest, go to a lot of different states, hunt some great deer, hunt in some great areas. Uh, To me, the biggest challenge I like is trying to make, based on, uh, I I have certain, uh, I call it realistic expectations. You know, I'm certainly not going to uh, produce and grow uh, multiple Boone and Crockett's on this small farm, okay? But I really enjoy doing the work and getting the best deer that I possibly can have grow on this property. And just to give you a little background, it's, uh, you know, it's your typical half-mile-deep Uh, It was a 70-acre farm, and a small little uh, three-and-a-half acres was taken out of the corner that the original farm, uh, house, and barn was split off of the property before it was sold. It's what you call gently rolling over here. I'm going to say the topography changes about 25 to 35 feet, Uh, nothing really steep. There's one small, steep bank that goes to a swamp, but but not the kind of ridges that you would see in, you know, say, Illinois and Missouri and, and that type of thing. And it does have a really uh, very interesting wetland. It winds through kind of the, the central core of the property. And so it divides the north and the south sections with the highlands. It actually separates the two. And there's uh, peninsulas and small islands. And uh, so I've come to really appreciate having the water and that transition area where you go from flooded timber to hardwood. And when I first bought the property, that's where 90% of the deer movement was because there's a big change in stem density from where you have open, you know, where the sunlight's getting in, creating early successional growth, where there's a swamp system, to where it transitions over to, say, a mixture of oaks and maples, which is typical forest habitat that we have here in southern Michigan. Uh, But it was a closed canopy forest. Uh, it, It had about 22 acres tillable on it, and at the time I wasn't sure what I was going to do, so I kept just cutting away at it, and uh, I found out that there was only two small locations that there were any deer doing any bedding on on this property. Uh, you know, it, it, I see a lot of closed canopy woods here in Michigan, so if you've got no understory and no cover, you're not going to have a lot of bedding. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, there were some good stands of oak, so depending on the year... Uh, mass crops you could have great acorn uh drop and you'd have quite a few deer using the property but uh you know when you go back to uh it was 1981 when i bought this property and i knew nothing about scent control and uh, overhunting stands and i made all those mistakes you know i mean you name it i did it but uh on the other hand you know, that's the best way to learn so true so it didn't take very long mark when i where i i started uh cutting trees Okay, I actually had some some select cut timber um, cuts done on this property. I think I had three cuts on this property, staged at seven-year intervals. And uh, once in a while, I'd ha- I'd have some good uh, cutting situations that took place where I did get a lot of early successional growth, and right away I had deer bedding in them. And uh, you know, and I and all during this time, I bought the uh, say deer and deer hunting magazine. Uh, I was just trying to suck up every piece of information you could about deer habitat. I read every book that John O'Zoga had written. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he talked a lot about uh, clear cutting and selective cut and creating cover. And so I just went off on my own trying to create cover on this property. And uh, probably in the, I'm going to say, mid-80s to early 90s, uh, people were discussing food plots. So I started getting into... You know, rather than leasing my farm out for corn and soybeans and that type of thing, uh, telling the farmer, "Hey, you know, I'm going to take this seven acres and I'm no longer going to plant it," you know, and he'd have he'd look at me with that "What are you doing?" <laughs> look, you uh-huh. know, <laughs> you know, because he doesn't want it taken away and he thinks, "What am I? you know,
2: and, and this,
4: he's "What are you going to do with them? Well, I'm going to make deer habitat," you know.
2: And, he thinks you're and really so crazy. my
4: wife. And I got two sons, and at the time though uh, both my boys were probably you know uh, mid to late teenage years and you know and I, so I'd tell them, "Hey, you know, I bought a bunch of trees, we're going to plant some trees, and oh you know they would uh, they would disappear on weekends, you wouldn't even know where they were you know because <laughs> it got to be a lot of work but but the truth is, it was a lot of fun, and we planted uh, all kinds of conifers and uh, hardwoods as well, and mast you know uh, different type of mass trees that uh, were not common from around here and really got into, you know, growing food and creating cover and uh, turning it. At the time, I didn't didn't realize what I was doing, but I'd been on one property in central Hillsdale uh, County that I had permission to hunt that there were pods of trees rather than trees being in a block. They didn't, they didn't seem to make any sense, but you felt like you were in a maze when you walked around. So I, I basically emulated that and planted trees and, you know, a few straight lines here and there, but a lot of crazy groupings and fingers and points and alcoves. And it ended up taking seven acres, and over about ten years, that seven acres developed into just a, an, an incredible core area of buck and doe movement and, you know, great food plots. And, you know, it, it just, you know, so each year I would learn. I'd learn from my successes and uh, e- evaluate my failures just like anybody. Uh, but got real good at planning food plots and then really got into, uh, you know, into the technique of hinge cutting. Started hearing about it, started reading about it, had friends of mine that, that had tried it or been somewhere where they had seen it done and uh, got into hinge cutting, and that completely blew things up. On this property, as far as you know, instant success for bedding and predictability of deer movement, and then from that I learned, you know, what the size of a hinge cut you should have, and probably I'm going to say mid 80s, early 90s. We had a really bad ice storm here one year, and and you've seen it, you know, you know right there where where you hunt. Sometimes we'll have an ice storm in February and it'll never get warm enough, and the ice hangs on the trees for weeks.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: So what I had was I had a peninsula that went out into this swamp, and there was about a dozen to 15 red cedar trees. It might have been, you know, six to eight inches in diameter, but 20 feet tall. Well, was, All that ice took those trees and just bent them in a big arch. And anyways, after the ice thawed, those trees never returned in an upright position. So you had this beautiful arching that, was, that you could literally walk underneath. And it didn't take long for me to figure out that's where all the bucks were bedded. And then I started trying to copy all that, either pulling trees down with ropes and, uh, you know, hinge-cutting and stacking trees on top of each other to basically duplicate that effect. And, uh, you know, just over the years, I have created this property with a lot of good food, uh, some great bedding locations, and I, I learned... Early on in this, when I started doing the timber management, that there were certain locations does seemed to prefer to bed and, and locations that bucks seemed to prefer to bed, and they were not the same two locations. And now you read about it in, you know, in, a, in a lot of different uh, places, but you know, if you go back 20 years ago, nobody talked about that. So that was one of the first things I noticed on my own was that it seemed like bucks and does liked to have segregated bedding and the doe families were into larger bedding groups, and the bucks liked to be isolated, and they were solitary creatures. And so I really started f- focusing on that and developing more and more isolated small bedding areas for bucks and larger bedding areas created for doe family groups and then attaching them with travel corridors. And, uh, and this property is just a really great property. I mean, it's, it's something to watch during the hunting season. And, you know, as the years went by, you know, I mean, there, it just, you know, things that you'd learn, you know, like, you know, any of us who's hunted, we saw plenty of ground scrapes. And I'm a real watcher, and so I'd always sit in these trees with binoculars from a long distance away and just watch, you know, everything. Why is a buck doing what he's doing? And even though I never really understood it 100%, I started copying it. So before you even read about mock scrapes, I was doing that myself. Pulling limbs down, uh, trying to create places for bucks to scrape, and uh, through the years I found out that you can create an awful lot of competition within your bucks on small properties by putting those in key locations close to bedding areas on the edge of uh, food plots. And so I think for anyone that's listening to this, if they've got a small property and they they you know they want the best hunting they can have. Uh, There's a a phrase I coined about 15 years ago, and I call it the magic triangle. And that is, you want to have the three most important things, at least in my opinion, for deer on a small pressured property is security cover, food, and water, all closely associated to each other.
2: So, So, Jake, then my question then is, in your particular instance, how did you go about actually implementing those things so you talked about the cuttings and things like that but i'm kind of curious about well maybe maybe more i'm curious about what it actually looks like today can you walk us through specifically now you know do you have two food plots or is it 10 food plots do you have you know one major area of hinge cutting or is there six or how can you describe a little more detail of what that now looks like how you actually implemented this magic triangle on your property
4: Yes, yes, I can. Um, I started with, uh, I think a lot of people went off in this direction early in the food. I planted a large food plot, not knowing any better, okay? And I'm going to say something of uh, an acre and a half or so, and which which I would now classify as a destination food plot. And uh, um, But I have kept that food plot because the location's right, there's a lot of cover around it, a lot of trees around it, and I've changed the shape of it, and I've planted some trees in it, and and that sort of thing to break it up and compartmentalize it. But this property exists with uh, I have a total. By the time I get my fall plantings in, there's probably about nine and a half to ten acres of food on 67 acres planted solely for deer. And out of that, there's about three and a half to four acres of what I, I would uh, deem destination food plots. In an acre or larger in size, and uh, my largest uh, food plot is probably about two and a half acres. And then I have a, uh, you know, I have a number of small food plots, micro food plots, that I'm going to say are in the one eighth of an acre to a third of an acre in size. And basically, the small food plots are closest to the bedding areas, to where the great cover is. And I, what I tried to do is stage the deer from the and these bedding locations. If you saw this property, imagine, imagine looking down at a property, and in the center of the property is a uh, a swamp, and it's flo- it's more flooded timber than your typical swamp. There's oaks and maples and small islands out in there. It's a, it's wood duck heaven, and so it's got a bunch of fingers and points and things like that in it. So anywhere you have a large peninsula, I started creating these bedding areas out into those peninsulas. And then on the edges where I would stop the hinge cutting or or stop the cutting process, then probably within 20 yards of that area, 30 yards of that area, I have a small little micro food plot, but a very well-defined travel corridor where I would bring the deer out of the bedding areas to the first small little micro food plot, and then, you know, they travel another 60 to 75 yards to another food plot, to another food plot. They may pass another bedding area, and ultimately they reach the destination food plot. And that's really how this property is set up, and I've pretty much broken into, like, three segments. So imagine three, three small properties, all with that design, contained within this 67 acres, if that helps you understand.
2: It does. It, it sounds what like a you, beautiful picture. What did you...
3: Yeah. It, what
2: did you uh, design
3: first? The did you put the destination plot first and then design the rest of the property around that or did you find a bedding area and 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 start from that end?
4: Actually, you know, I was working on the woodses before I was uh planning food plots, so I actually developed the bedding areas first.
3: And then you created and, and, and it,
4: was, it was a natural bedding area to start with. I mean, I would, you know, I would jump deer in there, uh, not knowing uh, any better at the time, trying to hunt a spot in November, uh, not understanding, you know, that I was going in at the wrong time of the year with porcelain control. So I knew deer preferred this particular peninsula. And to this day, it is the greatest bedding peninsula on this property.
2: So
3: uh, then from there, so you had a bedding area, and then did you create – Knowing that they're going to a destination food plot, did are you able to basically influence deer movement between this bedding area and the the uh, the destination plot with these micro plots and these other little thick areas in your on your property?
4: Yes, Dan. That's exactly what happened. And you know, throughout this process, I was planting trees. I had different tree, Ages, You know, I had trees that were three feet tall, trees that were 15 feet tall, all these different diverse tree, uh, you know, uh, species, and then I would have areas, open areas, where I was planting warm season grasses, and what I found is I could take, literally, you can take a five-acre section of a property and create these micro-habitats and deer socialization areas, areas that deer like to spend a lot of time rubbing, scraping, uh, showing off to each other, uh, food, you know, there's bedding close. there's uh, half a dozen small food plots. And then I was real specific about mowing these, these three-foot-wide travel corridors. I really, you know, I bought, uh, now you call it a DR field and brush mower, but at the time this one was made by a company called uh, Swisher. And it was a 30-inch-wide walk-behind brush hog and i probably bought that 30 years ago and i started connecting every food plot and every bedding area with a 30 inch wide mowed path through the woods through the hinge cuts through the warm season grasses through the spruce trees that i planted and i did it i never did an anything any path with any straight lines to it it was constantly winding and what i in the beginning, it was a lot of times a mistake. I'd cut a big tree. I had a treetop. So oh, shoot, i got to go around this. Well, I found that if deer can't see a long distance, then they have to walk down these, these curving, winding trail systems to look into the next food plot or to come down on the edge of a bedding area. And, you know, during that seeking phase that we all love to hunt, um, I use this term compartmentalization, you know. Uh, I like to take what was 10 acres of a wide open field and make it so deer can't see any more than 30 yards anywhere in there. No matter where they're at, they can never see any more than 20 to 30 yards. And I've sat in a tree stand and watched the same three-and-a-half-year-old buck for four hours wander all over seven acres and never leave that area during the rut. Where 20 years ago, he cut across that wide open wheat field and went on to the neighbors and was gone in just about forty seconds, you know. Huh. So it was a real eye opener for me, and uh, um, I hope that that opens your or answers your question for you.
2: Yeah, so uh, super interesting. And I've actually seen similar results on you know one of my Michigan properties where I did something kind of similar. There was just a great big wide open. Field of grass, and I went and added food plot screens around it, screened it up into three different sections, and then added some food in between there. So, like you said, when you compartmentalize it, you give a deer you give deer incentive to, to travel more because they want to see what's in the next right. one, or they want it. When they're moving, or in a buck's case, you know, cruising, checking for does that time of year. Also, uh, I think that that also provides a greater level of security during daylight. It also reduces stress. I think yeah, I've read a lot about how you know. For example, doe family groups will feel more stressed if they're a whole bunch in one area versus split up into their own separate, you know, more covered, secure region. So there seems to be a lot of benefits to that. But I'm kind of curious, you know, we've heard about all these changes you've made to your property from adding the bedding areas to the micro food plots to the destination food plots and creating this core region where there's so much activity. Um, In addition to like an example you just brought up there where you saw this one buck use a small area for hours. Are there any other tangible results now you know what's what's been the the end outcome now of all these changes when you when you go out there during november or whatever you know what are you seeing now I'm kind of, i kind of asked this because i imagine there to be people listening at home who live in michigan or pennsylvania or new york and they have 60 acres or 40 acres and they're wondering okay if i did this what what could i actually produce
4: well here's uh i will i will give you a tell you exactly what i've been able to see and what i did produce but i i want to uh, put a disclaimer on there and that is uh all of these things on a small property mean little to nothing in your ability to see deer on a predictable basis unless you as a hunter really understand scent control and also understand when and how to understand and when not to understand and uh so, so that's part of what, what I teach each each one of my clients. You know, is not only do I go through all these habitat changes, but boy, I'll tell you, if you if you really want this to work, because you're going to put all this time and energy into it, scent control is highly important. And then, you know, don't enter a bedding area the first week in November or uh, first week of October. Okay, you know, you know how everybody can't wait for October first. You know, <laughs> counting down the days. So what do they do? They they get on their camouflage. And they had their stands hung since uh, August, and they go right into a bedding area. Well, you know, at that time of the year, it's really, really hard to get into a bedding area in the morning and beat the deer there because the rut really is not happening yet. So I try to uh, work with people and pass what I know and let them know that the more they know about deer biology the better hunter and land manager they're going to be you know there's certain times of the of the year that you can enter bedding areas in the morning and then there are certain times of the year you can't and and same with feeding you know i can i can tell you if i had it to do over again i would make some changes uh but i've got so much invested in time and energy and and, and creating these large food plots that one of the things i learned uh because i had such good bedding and such good habitat i increased the deer population on this property significantly so then i couldn't hunt in the mornings in october because no matter (laughs) where i went i was bumping deer (laughs) you know yep but it didn't take me long to go well that's all right i can deal with that you know and uh, uh but i mean those are good problems but what but ultimately, you know, to answer your question, what have I seen? Um, you know it, along with with developing this property, I went through my own personal development of learning to pass deer. And, and you know if if you only hunt Southern Michigan, and you know how many hunters this part of Michigan gets, mm-hmm. uh, trying to uh, trying to uh, pass a hundred and twenty five inch deer, Uh, At least for me, you know, I definitely had to go through some steps to get there, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, um, I've been able to do that. And I will tell you that uh, there probably has not been a year in the last 10 or 15 years that I've not had a, uh, say, 135 to 150-ish type buck around me multiple times. Wow. And there are days that I have four or five of them
2: wow and
4: uh, that's the beauty of the change that i've made on this small property so uh, um, you know i would say that anybody can do this if they put their heart into it and understand how important bedding is and safe zones you know the term sanctuary and you know where to walk when not to walk uh, you know it's it's all you know it's all tied into one another but Anyone can have it. I've seen very small properties right here in southern Michigan, say ten to eighteen acres, uh, treated exactly the way I mentioned how I've handled my own and, and watched these landowners have very similar results.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, for those listening that maybe aren't familiar with the setting like where we're at, you know, those kinds of results like even even if you just said every year you see at least one buck. That 's over one thirty that 's pretty incredible for most people in Michigan just to see a buck it like that that 's like a once in a lifetime buck for some people around us um and except for people that you know are working like you are to manage these properties or if you happen to to live in an area near an area like that or have a great sanctuary or swamp or whatever it might be but there's of course there's some guys like like Dan in Iowa where that's like an average Tuesday. But um yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for, yeah. in these situations like to to say that you're seeing multiple deer like that, I mean that is that's really impressive to me because I know, you know, even for me, I, heck, I'm not seeing I'm not very often seeing deer like that ever in that area. So it, it really seems like there's there's proof in the pudding to what you're doing. Um and it's fascinating.
4: It you know, it yeah, you know, to this day, you know, I'm I'm constantly learning. I I'm always trying something new. Um, there's not a a year goes by that I don't uh, come up with some crazy idea. And, and and you know, my wife says I'm just an absolute deer crazed man. And uh, and I usually give it about two or three years before I will then uh, offer it to my clients. And uh, I'm I have just recently I'm going to say in the last two to three years. Focused a lot with going into bedding areas and and irregardless of how that bedding area is created, where, whether it's a hinge cut, a combination of a, a select cut timber harvest and hinge cut, or say a clear cut, or just say an, an early successional growth. Maybe it was a field and it hasn't been planted in fifteen years, you know, and it starts with grass and weeds and now you've got you know all kinds of different things, including autumn olive growing in there. One of the things I've keyed in on are these small little alcove openings within the bedding structure itself, and uh, and I go into those openings and I kill them with Roundup. I, I kill, I cut everything and I kill everything. Uh, I spray it and then I come back and I seed it heavy with about 60% chicory and about 40% Duraina clover to actually have the kind of food that bucks crave in november in a bedding area because if you understand what a deer goes through during the day you know they bed but they also they still feed you know every hour and a half two hours they're up and they've got to feed a little bit so i've used this philosophy to do this on my small property to hold these bucks in my bedding areas and keep them close so they're not moving around and exposing themselves and getting in trouble (laughs) Yeah. And, and what I can tell you is my game cameras and my last two years' experience has proved that it's working.
2: Interesting. So then are you, you're you holding those bucks there with these terrific bedding areas that have both great cover and great food. But how are you taking advantage of that from a hunting standpoint? Are you eventually going into those bedding areas during the rut, or are you always hanging um, out of the sanctuary and hunting well, the edges?
4: I'm, you know, uh, It's a combination of two things. Um but I will tell you that i I cut a very uh, really you'd have to see it to believe it, and I just uh again i'd love to have you come out here and see these sometimes.
2: but I that. cut
4: these very distinct travel corridors from the from the core section of the bedding area through that opening and right out past my hunting stand and these uh, travel corridors are from thirty inches to four feet wide I've got trees cut parallel on each side not never thick enough to be a wall you know you want it porous enough so a deer can go right or left anytime it has to i have some overhead cover there and i actually plant that food all the way through right up right up that travel corridor right up past the stand okay so they come out of their great bedding area they eat in that little clearing and i basically uh give them a freeway ramp right on to <laughs> the to the uh exit zone that they want to head to and it just gets them you know the does come in there and of course eat and browse and uh, you know I'll cut a lot of the small saplings right at ground level and the saplings of course will send up suckers which is highly nutritious because you've got a great root system there so that's great native browse and so it's a combination of a few things I do but it really creates predictable deer movement
2: sounds like it there's it's funny you know we have a lot of different guests on the show Mm -hmm. Who have all sorts of different experiences and they hunt different areas, and I can't remember. I'm already forgetting. Maybe I, maybe I mentioned this at the beginning of this show with you, Dan. But I've come to just really get a kick out of the very different ways of going about this. And you know, there's some people like have, that have a situation like yours, Jake, where you're able to manage and manipulate and adjust a property, you know, through your own work and time. And that's really fascinating and interesting, and then there's other people who maybe hunt public land somewhere where they can't manipulate the habitat at all, but their hard work and their strategy is put into okay, how do I figure out what the deer are doing right now, regardless of the habitat, and try to take advantage of that or take advantage of other hunters and there's there's something really cool about all those different ways, and I appreciate all the different ways, and I find them so interesting and and as you were as you were walking through how you're you know setting up this This line of travel you're creating for deer. I just got to thinking um, how I think there's something great about all of them. And I love this idea of how you're manipulating it. But I know some people will hear this and say, ah, well, where's the hunting in that? Because he's just leading the deer right to him or something like that. And I personally... I think it's all really interesting and fascinating. The different ways we go about hunting is pretty cool. And uh, I don't know, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I just started thinking about this idea. I don't know, if you, have you ever encountered that, Jake, with people not liking these types of ways that you're going about it or, or anything like
4: that? Um, you know, occasionally I do, and, and I will tell you that uh, anyone who has spent 40-plus years hunting uh, high-pressure deer in southern Michigan will soon find out that the reason I'm doing this these deer are the most challenging deer to kill, I think there is in the whole midwest mm-hmm. uh, i I've met so many people from out of state that came to Michigan and tried it, and uh off camera will say i don't know how you kill those deer <laughs>
2: <laughs> i I'm, I'm still trying to convince because, you Dan know, they, to come they, here
4: yeah, yeah dan Dan would uh, get a kick out of it, <laughs> you know uh because hey, let's face it, you know uh, I've spent some time recently in Iowa and northern Missouri. And, you know, we're talking areas where there may be three, four miles and only one or two bow hunters in that entire three or four miles. So those deer are completely different deer. And then you take the kind of deer that you hunt, Mark, in Michigan, that I hunt here in Michigan, um, they're dealing with 15-plus bow hunters per square mile. Some areas may uh, maybe much more than that. So these deer are on edge, and it doesn't take much pressure to have them leave, you know, their safe zone and go somewhere else or just uh, decide you're only going to move, you know, at night. You know, a lot of people say, oh, they go nocturnal. I think a lot of that has to do with us. You know, we're our worst nightmare, you know, when it comes to that. But uh, so I've just tried to adapt what works for me. But you're right. I have met a few people that say, well, geez, you know, that seems too easy. Well, isn't that the goal? I mean, I'm real, uh, I'm very ethically oriented as far as how I take a deer. And for me, my biggest challenge is how close can I get a mature Michigan deer to me and still be able to take it with a bow? Yeah. And I've killed three-and-a-half-and-older deer at uh, less than 10 yards, and a lot of them at that 10 to 15 yards. And uh, as you know, Mark, that's not e- an easy uh, task no. uh accomplish
2: no not even with the best uh, property in the world that's still really challenging by you
4: and i've probably killed three or four bucks you know that would uh flirt with that uh, low 120s to low 130s on the ground with a bow at 10 yards wow and uh, it just it's just a blast i i just so enjoy the challenge
2: oh yeah there's something like I, I get a kick out of traveling to Bohan other areas you know it's, it's totally different you know when I go to Iowa or wherever it's oh, very yeah. different and very fun in a certain kind of way but then it's also really fun to try to do it here in Michigan where there are these inherent challenges that are very different um, and there's a different kind of fun to all of it so it, it definitely forces you to learn and adjust try different things um, and, and I guess to that point when we're talking about some of the different, create things that you've created on your property. I, I, first, one of the things I want to talk about was your cover, how you're creating cover, because I've, I've learned a lot about creating cover from some of the things I've seen you do on your videos and, and talked about hinge cutting in particular, something that seems to be something you've really utilized well. And we've kind of dabbled with it over some episodes over the past couple of years, but never really dive too deep into it. So it's curious, Jake, could right. you walk us through exactly how to hinge cut the right way? Because I think I've been doing it occasionally the wrong way, and I want to make sure that I fix that for the future.
4: Yes, you know, and and rather than get into the mechanics of hinge cutting, because I think everybody, you know, there's so many videos and and pictures available. uh, You know, hey, you're you're cutting, uh, you know, basically you're cutting 55 to 75% through the tree, depending on the species, to get it to uh, fall in the direction you want it to fall and uh, stay connected and stay alive. And even if the tree dies, if it stays connected, then you can uh, hinge additional trees across it, and that becomes, say, what we call a foundation tree, to create overhead living co- cover. And we're also letting sunlight into the ground, which creates early successional growth uh, in the terms of deer cover and, and browse. Okay, you know, I, I think people don't realize how important browse for deer truly is. So I'm a big proponent of early successional growth. But to kind of help the listeners understand what and – and this is clearly my opinion, okay? It's my years of watching and cutting and, and cutting on other people's properties. Well, any time I look at a property, I always tell people this is the easiest way to understand it. Imagine you have just built a 70-acre pond that you want to plant – walleyes, largemouth bass, and northern pike in. So now you're going to put structure in there to fish for them in, right? And so I literally go about creating structure on these 50 to 70-acre properties. And one of the neatest things that happens when you create a hinge-cutting area is you have a spot where you quit hinge-cutting, and then you have the existing woods, whether it's a closed canopy woods or medium age woods, and that's an edge. And a lot of hunters may not be able to see that edge until you show it to them. then they go, oh, yeah, yep, I can definitely see that. And there's going to be a change in stem density, a change in in, uh, tree age, and, of course, a change in the canopy. And that is where probably 75% of the deer movement takes place. So I use the edges. I mean, I actually create my own pinch points with hinge cuts. You know, people say, well, I don't have any natural funnels, and I don't have Well, crap, you can make one. You know, give me a half an hour with a chainsaw, and I'll make you a good one. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's just, you know, it's uh, really cool to manipulate deer movement and have them go where you want them to go, because anybody that has a small property has clearly got a lot of locations they can't easily get into and get out of without bumping deer. So if you come up with the great location that's easy to get in with screening, and easy to get out of, then you can create, you know, a, uh, a larger hinge-cutting area for bedding and then create pinch points and uh, what you call neck-down funnel areas with low-cut trees that they don't bed under. Uh, but I hope that sort of answered the question. Uh, you know, ideally for deer bedding, you've, the canopy of the hinge-cut has to be, you know, pretty much chest to, to head high you want deer to be able to walk underneath move around and lay down and within that hinge cutting where you're going to have trees going in different directions you've got to go back in there and cut trails for deer to move from one location of the hinge cut to another you've done enough of it mark to know that when you start hinge cutting like it or not the top of that tree is going to end up on the ground right (laughs) very true Yep, and then you're going to cut two or three other ones, and two or three of those trees are going to cross that tree that you hinged. And so you're definitely going to, within a hinge cut, you're going to have areas deer cannot move, the treetops are there, but you're also going to have areas where the trees cross each other, lay parallel to each other, um, are being held up by the structure that you've created so that deer can move around safely underneath. And, and I think this goes back to what I observed many years ago when I told you the story about the cedar trees that got bent over by the ice. Mm-hmm. These deer really liked that overhead canopy, and that, thats what really—that's when the light bulb went off for me. So it was just watching that deer did this, you know, from a natural situation. So why not just start doing it myself?
2: Right, know? makes sense. Now, Jake, there there seems to be two different camps that I've kind of encountered when it comes to. You know, creating or manipulating bedding areas. There's some folks that like to just create an area, a general region, and there's some people that like to have a region, but then try to create actual individual beds that they think maybe a buck would use based on some criteria. Which do you do you believe in either one of those is better or the other?
4: You know, I've had success with both. Um, I will tell you for myself when I create the what I call the dove family bedding group, and that's going to be a large area because, let's face it, doe families are multiple deer in the fall. Okay, you know, you're going to look at anywhere from 7 to 11 uh, adult does and young fawns all bedding together because they're a related family group. So that's going to take an area, say, a quarter to half to three-quarter of an acre of a hinge cut to create what I call these bedrooms for deer to bed in but I may not go in there and clear out the individual areas. I'll go in and clear some areas and give them locations, but nothing like I will for isolated buck bedding. And I may go 80 to 100 yards from that doe bedding area and find a isolated point or peninsula and build a, a isolated bedding location for one buck so that he can satellite that bedding area because you know the stress that does put on bucks. Until the time is right, they really don't want a whole lot to do with each other. So right. uh, I've, I've had good luck with both, but I think on a small property, um, I have had probably better luck with the isolated, you know, identifying these eight or nine locations I'm making just for buck bedding. And then I've got these three or four locations I'm designating just for doe family bedding. And, you know, more than likely here in southern Michigan, if you've got 40 or more acres, you're going to have one, two, maybe three different doe family groups that are not related. And that gets into that stress factor you mentioned a while Mm -hmm. ago. And that's the beauty of compartmentalization and and having smaller food plots, is now you can have unrelated doe family groups that compete. And everybody's seen them when they, if anybody's watched them in food plots or on, say, bait piles, they stand on their hind legs and swat each other. So you can now you can ha- not only you can take the same idea from how they treat each other in a feeding situation and do that in a bedding location. You can produce enough isolated bedding locations, large enough for multiple deer, for these these family groups to each have their own spot. Now that doesn't mean they won't rotate from one to the other, and you know because wind. I mean there's so many factors involved. I mean like I said I. I I run cameras, and I test stuff all the time, and I I note everything from barometric pressure to wind direction. So, you know, you might have a doe family group of seven, uh, you know, a total of seven antlerless deer bedding in one area today, and tomorrow the wind direction is completely opposite, and the temperatures are different, and now they're bedding 40 yards away, facing a different direction, entering and exiting from a different direction. so I love to build a hotel Hilton for a hundred guests, and uh, you know a hundred rooms. But I'll let those thirty guests pick the rooms.
2: Okay, it's <laughs> <laughs> a good analogy. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jake, but for most of the things I've seen and heard from others, when you're trying to, when you're thinking about doe bedding areas versus buck bedding areas. Most of the time, when you relate it to a food source, you're going to have the does bedded or creating your doe bedding group closer to the food source, and then typically a buck would be back behind that doe bedding group even further back into the cover. It, would you say that's accurate, and is that how you typically go about trying to create these?
4: You know, that, that, that's a pretty accurate standard uh, analogy. It, it, it is, Mark. Um, other than um, time of the year can have a big impact on that. Um, If if we have really cold weather and deep snow, these does are going to move so close to the food that they're going to literally be right on the edge of it. And uh, so part of my holistic plan for every property is winter thermal cover, which is going to be in the form of Norway spruce and white pine or a mixture of both, up close to the food so that you don't really expect those does to be bedding in there in mid-October, but you would in mid-December. But what you're getting at is, yes, I like the bucks farther back, and I like the does and a designated, you know, so, it, so you stage where these deer are bedding. You've got a layer of buck bedding areas and a layer of doe bedding areas, and then, of course, you've got
2: the food. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So I'm curious, Dan, over there, what, what are your thoughts on this? This is a little bit different than your situation back home
3: right um i i mean i got a lot of questions but in regards to the different locations of the doe versus buck bedding areas um, you know you mentioned a smaller type of bedding area for a buck but is there anything different that you're doing you know or are you still hinge cutting are you still you know clearing some areas out or are there two different things that you're doing one for doe and one for buck
4: um in general terms the process is quite identical but i will tell you that the isolated buck bed is generally going to be three or four trees hinge cut in a uh, in a tight isolated area and i'm going to create uh i'm going to create an uh an area for one deer to bed i'm going to cut a number of logs, what I call backstops, that are gonna be eighteen to twenty four inches in diameter and four feet long, so that I can set some of those logs, say on the north side of, of where he would bed and then some on the south and the southwest side so that depending on the prevailing wind he can put his back up against that, you know, and and look look downwind and then smell what he can't see from behind his back. And then what I will do is I will hinge cut a number of trees around this bedding area low to create what I call fringe cover so that when he's bedded in there all by himself, uh, he, he feels like he's not out in the open, okay? He, you know, it's a small enough, you know, you're really talking about doing a 10 by 10 area, you know, if you were trying to, give, you know, provide a, a dimension, you know, 10 to ten to 15 feet long, 10, or you know, three or four trees hinge cut. Creating a really nice oval that's four to five feet long, and, and I actually flat—I use a shovel and I flatten them out. I I, I cut every tree, every twig, and uh, I also put about four inches of pine needles in them, and I, just like it was my lab laying down.
2: <laughs> wow! And
4: I've had the best of luck with them. I mean, I've I've gotten you know a lot of bucks using them. Uh, you know, going there and you investigate, and the hairs everywhere, and I've I found some real nice antlers in these beds in the wintertime, and uh, uh, so, so you know, the buck bed is small and by itself, and and, and Dan, to, to help you a little bit, you know, uh, one thing we didn't talk about is topography. If you're in areas of terrain change, say 40 to 50 foot terrain change in ravines and things like that, then you, you deal with it a little bit differently because there's what's called the military crest where you've got a point and then it drops off pretty steep on the end of that point and that buck typically likes to be right out there just before it drops off and then the larger more flat region 50 yards backwards on that point where it's more flat that's where the doe's bed so does that kind of explain things for you Dan Oh yeah Yeah
2: what what else do you got, Dan? You got lots of questions. I, I, I want to make sure that uh, we're getting this different perspective because I, I've done a lot of this habitat work and I'm kind of in a similar situation to Jake, but I always want to make sure, you know, for people in your situation that might be looking at yeah. this from a different a different viewpoint.
3: So, you know, you're talking about your your property is, you know, over 65 acres. I, Mark, I don't know what your property is. How big is your farm in Michigan? that you hunt on.
2: Yeah, the main farm I hunt's 90. 45 is cover, 45 is, is 90. tillable.
3: So, dropping it down all the way to like a 10 acre piece or uh, you know, or a 20 acre piece. Obviously, people who own those type of, you know, that num- those number of acres have less room to work with, but are you can you relate those property or those principles to a smaller piece just on a smaller scale? Or is there, are there things more things that you have to consider like neighboring properties when yeah. you're, you know, putting a plan together for your actual piece?
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, the neighbors and depending on the neighbor uh, and what's going on on the neighbor's property key to make it, you know, work really well or make it almost impossible you know if you happen to have a uh, uh can I say, you know um a neighbor that's uh let me say he's got 45 of his buddies there every weekend and they're shooting their pistols probably <laughs> not a good place to put betting you know <laughs>
2: <laughs> you yep.
4: and believe yep. it or not I've, I've run into these situations in in this business and uh uh, but ideally, you know, say, say you maybe you've got a neighbor and he's interested in hunting and he's got four or five tree stands right along your property border, you know, and 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 I think that's a normal Michigan scenario. People run into that, so you have to look at, well, you know, uh, how can I, how can I develop the property and be strategic and be somewhat competitive? Well, how can I get these bucks older? Maybe that neighbor shoots the first. doesn't care about deer age structures so he shoots the first year and a half old that comes across the fence or along the fence or whatever so there's things you have to do as far as where you establish the bedding areas Uh, screening is a great you know is a great tool that i use you know so so in the process of hinge cutting there's a number of different heights that you hinge cut depending on the purpose you want to use them you know, bedding is a high hinge cut, screening is a low hinge cut. You're literally building, you know, imagine building a fence with trees that are laying sideways. And, of course, deer won't bed underneath trees if there's no, not sufficient room for them to bed. So you can create great screening, get sunlight in there, get early successional growth, and maybe create a wall and then 40 yards from that wall deeper into your property, then you build a bedding area so that then a lot of the deer movement is farther away from the neighbor's property. But every property, depending on topography, uh, you know, the all-important water, I I can't say that enough how important water on a property is. And the natural water is great, but if you don't have it, I've seen some creative guys that I've worked with that have, you know, done everything from the small plastic tubs to... uh, Thinking a well and, uh, you know, investing some money in creating a a natural pond and that type of thing. But but water is definitely important for deer. They've got to have it. And it creates edges and uh, monocultures that you're just not going to get without it. Uh, But any small property can be tuned in, you know, to literally know where the deer are bedding and know where they're feeding. And then it's up to the landowner to be disciplined enough to Not hunt when it's the wrong time of the year and enter and exit at the right time. And, of course, use scent control.
2: All right. Now, before we move on to the next question, we do need to take a very quick break for word from our sponsors of this episode, the Whitetail Institute of North America. And today we've got a few quick tips from Whitetail Institute employee John Cooner in regards to perennial food plots. So first, John, what's the difference between perennials and annuals?
1: Okay, uh, perennials are basically uh, plants that uh, are products that are designed to last for more than one calendar year from a single planting. Uh, the uh, annuals are plants that are designed to last for uh, for part part of one calendar year. For, say, for instance, from spring to summer, or from you know during hunting season, or through winter, fall to spring, that sort of thing.
2: So then, how do you choose the right perennial option for your own plot?
1: Right. There are so many options out there to choose from, it it, it can really boggle the mind. Uh, Of course, you know, you can talk to your friends. They'll tell you what works well for them in your area. Uh, Go to a farm supply store. They'll be able to tell you different kind of seeds uh, that are appropriate for a certain planting time, like cool season or warm season. Uh, Our products run a a, a very broad gamut. Uh, It's very easy to select the right product with ours. We've got a little product selector on our website and we design our products that are almost entirely blends uh, because it's rare to find, if ever, you find one plant variety that does everything you want it to in terms of attraction, nutrition, longevity, uh, fast growth, so we use uh, compatible forages of different types and then test them individually and together to see which ones uh, which ones give us the best overall performance. You know, we get calls sometimes, people say, you know, what's your best product? Uh, And my answer is always, what's the site like? Is it a good soil or is it a light soil? Is it something you can get into with equipment or not? Is it sloped? Is it not sloped? Do you want a perennial? Do you want an annual? you have to run through those factors uh, to get get a really good answer. And that's what that product selector does. It's a little program I wrote. And I remember when I did it, I was thinking, you know, I can look at a food plot, and I know in half a second what I'm going to put in there. I thought, well, how do I know that? And I realized what I'm doing is taking all – Of our products and putting them into a mental bucket, excuse me, and then running through a series of short questions, about three or four, in a certain order, and culling things out as I go. And when I get to the end, I have one or maybe even several forges that are ideal for that will produce optimum performance in that specific situation that soil type and slope, equipment access, time of the year, and all that.
2: If you'd like to learn more about Whitetail Institute's perennial food plot options or to check out that product selecting tool, you can visit whitetailinstitute.com. And now let's get back to the show. So we've talked about, we've talked about, you know, two corners of this triangle you brought up in the beginning, the, the bedding, the water just a little bit here, but what about some of the food tactics that you use on these small properties, whether it be your own or your clients, do you have any advice for small property owners? When it comes to trying to establish a food source or improve food sources or anything like that,
4: um, you know, uh, it's kind of a big subject, but I'll try and come go through it pretty quick. I guess if 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 I had my choice, I, I always tell the the uh, property owner to focus on cover because if you focus on your cover, you're going to produce way more food than the landowner realizes at the time. You know, woody browse. Uh, pretty much, uh, pr- you know, is is responsible for about 20 to 40 percent of a deer's daily diet. So if you're good with creating early successional growth, you're producing a food plot, you just don't know it, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the soil conditions, you know, you can have the greatest food plots in the world when you have, uh, you know, good loamy soil with with great nutrients in it, and then I also see... That it's yellow blow sand, you know, and and uh, you know they can't get they can't get a, a weed to grow in it, you know. when it does rain, it's uh, you know the moisture's gone in just a day or two, so it's, it's a lot of work to grow good food. So you know, so the soil has so much to do with your success when it comes to growing a food plot. So um, I like to have a destination food plot with you know again an attractive uh, food source, and that could be, you know, anything from turnips to brassicas, a mixture of both, and I also want multiple small micro food plots that go from that destination food plot back towards the bedding area, and it's somewhere in between those micro plots and the destination food plot where your hunting setups are going to be to take advantage of that deer movement from bedding where they stage and go from one small plot to the next, and eventually they hit the destination food plot just before dark, like 15, 20 minutes before dark. That's the idea. Not doesn't always work that way, but generally that's how it works.
2: Yeah. What are your thoughts on positioning of these food plots on a small property? You know, my, my intuition and what I've seen a lot of times is people talk about, you know, trying to have these food plots away from the edges, more towards the center portion of your property, but then are you more at risk of your neighbors blowing out bedding areas if your bedding areas are on the outsides? You know, if you could pick the perfect scenario or if you could create this perfect scenario, how would you like to position these things? Well,
4: I'll tell you what, you know, you go back uh, 20, 30 years ago, the few people that were talking about managing properties then always talked about putting a sanctuary in the center of the property and the food along the outside. So imagine that. You've got deer in the center of your property, now heading in a direction to leave your property right at dark. And I would just as soon, especially with small properties, put all the bedding along the outside edges of the property and put the micro food plots around, say, the, the interior one half of the property, and then the center of the property is where the destination food plot is. So then, the deer are staged bedding along the outside perimeters of your property, moving towards the center of your property right at dark. And that way, they're not moving across your uh, your fence, going over to your neighbors. And uh, if you're, you know, if you're trying to say maybe get that two and a half year old to a three and a half class, or to get that three and a half year old to four and a half, because that's your goal, you'll have better luck doing that. Yeah. And that's a lot of my property is set up that way. Uh, I actually have a, a, a property uh, uh, border where I've had uh, a few years of problems. Uh, people hunting on the line, hunting, I caught them hunting in my stands, and it's, it's, it's the farthest edge for me to reach the property, so it's hard for me to get there. I don't hunt it all that often, but it's a good location. And ultimately, what I did was I took that entire property border and hinge cut it and turned it into bedding and thick cover. It's the best thing I ever did.
2: Wow. Interesting. So speaking of those types of issues, you talked about the challenge of getting a buck from two to three or one to three or four and then dealing with you know neighbors that might have different goals or whatever it is. When it comes to small properties, have you, do you have any advice for those people that are trying to get those older age class bucks other than some of the habitat? Have you found there's any relationship things or other ways to go about you know better being able to implement the age part of quality deer management?
4: Well, I mean, there's no doubt that one of the best things you can do is talk to your neighbors and, and try to establish just a friendly, a uh, rapport with, hey, this is what I'm doing, and I'm, I'd am i really like to uh, hunt older, age-class deer and see where they stand, okay? And uh, as you know, Mark, and, and you probably know a lot about these too, Dan, uh, deer management co-ops are really popular here in Michigan mm-hmm. for that reason. And we have one established in this area, but I can tell you, uh, as great as this property is that I own right here, I do not have one property owner that borders me that practices or participates in this deer management co-op. So the most impressive thing about my property is it's 67 acres and I'm consistently growing deer four and a half and five and a half years old on 67 acres. And this is my takeaway from it. Um, I've been doing this long enough that these young button bucks that are born here or that, say, uh, they're a year and a half old and they disperse to this property. However they end up here, they find out in a really short amount of time that it's really dangerous outside of my property borders and really a great place to live inside. (laughs) And some of my target bucks I get the biggest kick out of because I, I strategically put Uh, my game cameras to watch these bucks' movement patterns before I go in and hunt stands at that you know magic 10 days out of the year. And I will notice these bucks will spend all day on the property, leave the property after dark, and come back onto the property before daylight. And so what you're doing is is you can't save them all. Some are going to cross and they're going to get shot by the neighbors. That's that's the reality of of hunting in southern Michigan. But you know what? A few of them are going to make it. And those are the ones I call them homeboys. And those are the ones you can you can personally watch, get game camera data on, and take the risk and say, you know what? I've never, I've never, you know, you can't kill a 150 if you kill a 140, right? Very <laughs> true. Yeah. So uh, actually, last uh, last muzzleloading season, I did that with a buck here that I actually targeted and had been watching him from the house, and went out with my muzzleloader. And, you know, my wife had been watching him with binoculars. She said, Man, you ought to go kill him. He's a, And he's a really nice eight point. I'm definitely in the mid-130s. He might have been wow. low 140s.
2: Jeez. And, anyways,
4: he came out just like he was supposed to, walked right in front of me, and I didn't kill him. Because I looked at him, and I said, you know what? Muzzleloader season's going to be over in a couple of days. And imagine what he'd be next year if he makes it. And uh, sure wow. enough, he made
2: it. That's, that's <laughs> tough to do in Michigan right there. That is a so, tough uh, choice. I,
4: you know. I guess the one thing I'd add to this, Mark, is, and you've probably heard this, but it is true, uh, we all need to have realistic expectations. Mm-hmm. If you've got a 40- or 90-acre property and you've got a bunch of neighbors that, for whatever reason, just do not want to cooperate, and the best you're getting on game camera and visual observation is 115-inch uh two and a half year old then that probably should be your goal for deer harvest and if you're lucky enough though to be able to get the occasional three and a half and that's what I try to do I try to hunt the top five percent of the deer herd you know whatever I've got that showed up on camera and I get a good a good inventory of them then I go okay these these two these three deer these are on my hit list nothing else is on the hit list I'm letting everything else go and if the neighbors kill them and, and Hey, it does. I, I see deer that I get pictures of and I've got, you know, I've got a uh, family that lives right next to me and, uh, they do not participate in, uh, passing young bucks so i see some really nice young bucks that i get pictures of and then they call me and tell me they got a six point hanging and i go over and i go oh yeah i know that deer <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep. you
4: know but it, it's you know in the grand scheme of things it's just one or two deer and i think that's probably uh, another good piece of advice i think people overthink it and get too worried about it um you know what you're t- if you do things right and you, you focus on what you can control not what you can't control And I think, you know, you're going to be just a lot more successful and, uh, just really have a lot more time and enjoy what you're doing as well.
2: Yeah. That's great advice for, for all of us, whether we're in situations like this, you know, with so many other hunters right around us or, or anywhere, you know, having, having the right expectations and and having fun with it. That's, that's an important takeaway from every conversation about deer hunting. Now, I've got another question for you, uh, kind of related to my situation in Michigan, or at least the way I go about hunting in Michigan, is that I am very, very particular about when I hunt and how often I hunt. Um, Even on a 90-acre property, like I mentioned, half of it essentially isn't huntable because it's just wide open crop field. Um, so I basically have 45 acres to work with and I very, very rarely hunt it, just when there's the right conditions because I'm really concerned about pressuring those deer. And if I, if I make one mistake with the one buck on the property that I'm interested in killing, I'm probably going to blow it. So for me, I spend maybe, you know, my season in Michigan kind of looks like I'll hunt the first night or two if the conditions are right. And then I might not hunt it again until the rut towards that beginning of the rut phase. Um, because at least... In my section, that's when I end up possibly having a chance of seeing some daylight movement from some of these deer. Maybe it's different, you know, in a property that you're able to do as much work as you've done. But I'm just curious, when it comes to hunting these smaller properties in heavily pressured areas, what are your thoughts on the timing of when you hunt them um, or anything related to that?
4: You know, Mark, I, I, I tell people I want to be the invisible hunter. My goal is to extremely low pressure, exactly what you said, And then, uh, you know, I don't know if you know much about my scent control uh, regimen, but some people think I'm absolutely crazy. Uh, But I do everything I can to uh, eliminate human odor. And, of course, you can't. But uh, um, I I only hunt at the right time of the year. And, and again, conditions have to be right. And uh, I'm lucky enough to live here, and we built the house so that we can have great viewing and so I do a lot of scouting from my kitchen windows.
2: (laughs) That's a nice situation.
4: You know, I watch the food plots and I've got, you know, uh, 12 acres of warm season grasses and I can see uh, 30 to 40% of the food plot, my destination food plots right here from the house. And I can go upstairs with my spotting scope and, uh, you know, I can see uh, 250 yards away and and watch bucks and does and, and, uh, but yes, I'm, I, I think the best takeaway that a small property owner can take from from my advice is the worst thing you can do is overhunt it because exactly what you said in ex, in explaining your situation will happen. Uh, you'll tip off that mature buck. And you know they'll get so frustrated because they keep getting nighttime pictures of him, but they never see him. You mm-hmm. know, and you've probably been down that road, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, you know, and it really is—it's a result of of their uh, their pressure on him. And, and uh, as you know, these Michigan deer—they're they're they're really, uh, you know, they are amazing survivors considering what they go through here. And uh, so, yeah, I only go in under the right conditions, and uh, you know probably like yourself cuz i know last year you had early season success and that dealt with the cold front yes and uh, and you know and so i'm uh, normally i'm i'm a lot like you i will hunt the first couple of days and typically that is for me to take out one or two large does if i've got enough deer uh, based on my surveys to uh, tell me i need to take a couple of big mature does out that's pretty much my goal I, I'm hunting, you know, really not exactly a, a buck-killing stand. I'm trying to kill a couple of big does. But, you know, you never know. if a, you, know, you might get a 130-inch deer come walking out that, that same exact trail at that time of the year. And usually then I back off. I just, uh, you know, I like to hunt grouse and woodcock in northern Michigan, and I'll do, I'll do a little of that. I'm always busy working on, uh, you know, uh, hunters' uh, layouts and designs and, and habitat plans. Uh, for this business, so I keep busy doing that, and I just run my trail cameras. And usually, two or three days before Halloween, depending on the temperature and and the conditions, I get a little more interested about trying to hunt these mature bucks. And uh, last year, the best the best morning hunt I had was Halloween morning. And and uh, you know, uh, fantastic morning. Target buck came came from the bedding area just like he was supposed to. Uh, following a doe, I mean, it was just, it was textbook, you know, less than 10 yards. I mean, you know, everything was perfect right up until the moment I took the shot, you know. Oh, no. that, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. Well, <laughs> it, it does. You know, that's the great thing of bow hunting is, uh, you know, uh, if it's going to go wrong, it'll go wrong then.
2: Mm-hmm. But, Nothing's um, guaranteed. Now, if I remember but, right, uh, Halloween in Michigan, because um, I, at that point, I think I had, I was in Iowa, but. A big cold front was hitting, right, around the 30th or 31st in Michigan, so that was probably what happened for you?
4: Yes. Yep, and uh, I really am a guy that keys in on cold fronts, and I love the northwest wind. Uh, Probably 70% of my hunting stand setups are strictly for northwest wind conditions. Um, Every good buck I ever killed with a bow, evening or morning, was killed pretty much in a northwest wind cold front and, and not that i haven't i've killed some with the the typical west and southwest wind you know the what you call the fair weather deer but uh, most of them are always moving under that cold front condition
2: yeah uh, i'm a huge yeah. fan of the same thing that's for sure
4: oh man you know i have a couple of funnels that i've uh, well number one they're they're somewhat natural and then i've enhanced them and i've got the bedding areas there and one is really difficult for me to get to but i have one that uh, When the conditions are right and it's the first week of November, I can't sleep that night. because I can't (laughs) wait to get in there. And, I mean, it never, ever lets me down. I mean, I've never gone in there and not had, you know, exactly what I expected to have happen. It doesn't always mean you kill the deer, okay? But, uh, boy, it sure is neat to to have one or two of those those go-tos. And it clearly is a result of the habitat, the food, and the fact that I don't go in there. You know, if you were in there six or seven times during October, during what people call the October lull, those bucks would be uh, know all about you, they'd have heard you, smelt you. Uh, and so now that the time is right, you go in there and you don't see him. And it's because he's on to you. So uh, I think they pattern us much better than we're able to pattern them.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I think me and Dan have experienced that many times, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, gosh, <laughs> Every season. Yeah. Every year, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny. Something you mentioned there is one of my absolute favorite things about a hunting season. And it's that day before or the night before when you just have those perfect conditions and you have a spot that you've been waiting for and everything feels like it's lining up. Like that level of anticipation that I get the night before or like on the drive to my property or whatever – uh, and you just have that feeling in your gut, like something good is going to happen. I, I live for yeah. that. That is the best.
4: Oh, uh, you know, I mean, I guess that's what keeps us out in the woods every day and gets you getting up at four thirty in the morning, isn't it?
2: Yes, exactly. Because uh, it can be tough sometimes.
4: Yeah. <laughs> it can. It, can, it, it you know, uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. Okay, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, especially someone like you, you're hunting multiple states. I know you hunt Ohio, mm-hmm. and uh, you said last year you hunted Iowa. So you're really putting in your time. And, you know, back in the old days, when I was still a pretty successful deer hunter, I killed a lot of deer with a bow and, uh, and a lot of small bucks before I understood the age class and all that kind of thing. So I would hunt, uh, I had two different, I had this property, and then I had permission to hunt another property in Hillsdale County. And I was one of those guys I hunted every available day I had, okay? Mm-hmm. And that becomes a lot of work. Uh, so... uh yeah, I, I can only imagine, you know, for the people that are in the business that, you know, they're just into filming and they, you know, they hunt 45, 60 days in a season. That's a long, cold season.
2: <laughs> yeah, it can be, that's for sure. And kind of to that point, you know, as we're talking about, you know, this idea of, of not hunting your small property a whole lot, being really careful about that. You know, we talk about, I've talked about this sometimes in the past, and then you get people who hear that and they say, well, I want to hunt you know, I, I, I love to deer hunt because I want to be out there. So this sounds like a stupid idea if I could never hunt my property. And I totally, I totally get that. And, and the way I kind of combat that, at least in my situation and a, you know, it depends on your goals, right? If you just want to be out hunting a lot, that's perfectly fine. And, you know, that's great. But if you are trying to kill a big or mature deer on a small property in a place like Michigan or wherever, you know, you have to go about it a little differently. So for me, what that means is that, you know, I've got, if I know there's a, a buck that I'm after a mature buck, let's say on this main Michigan property or one of the other ones, you know, I, I go into like mature buck hunting mode for that property. So that means this, you know, very careful timing, very few hunts just when it's right. But that doesn't mean I'm not hunting on the other weekends or the other days that I can hunt. You know, I'll still go hunt somewhere. I just have, you know, maybe it'll be a public place or maybe it'll be one of the other properties I have permission on where I can just go out there and hunt, have a good time, but I'm not necessarily so concerned about, you know, me actually seeing a mature buck or spooking a mature buck. Yeah, it's great. I'm out there so I might have a chance, but it's in an area where I'm not as concerned about possibly blowing it on the deer i'm really after so you know if you can go out there and get a couple additional properties by asking for permission or finding a piece of public land that you can still go hunt and have fun on um but then be particularly careful in the smaller areas maybe that you are trying to be careful with that mature deer that's one way to to still get to hunt but also have a chance at those kind of deer
4: right yep and uh, i would say one of the things i have uh, done on this property and actually three or four of my uh Clients in the last four or five years with similar-sized properties have done it. I've established stands that I'm going to call them low-productive stands but good visual stands. So you're just dying to get out there and see what the deer are doing, but you don't want to even think about entering your good zones. I've got places that I can hunt that are literally 75 to 100 yards from my house. Uh, You know, probably not going to run into Mr. Big, but you never know. Uh, but hey, yeah, you can go out there and hunt an evening, you know, and still see what the deer are doing, and use your, uh, you know, got your binoculars and and glass and see where they're coming in and out of the bedding areas and what time they're moving in. Uh, because hey, you know, let's face it, that's what you know. We do all this work all year long, just for that short window of time. Yeah. And so if if you're not lucky enough to have that state land or uh, some private land that somebody else lets you, uh, you know, gives you permission to hunt on. You can establish some other you know what you call what I call them low productive more observation type stands But you're still out there hunting and then that's, that's good.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. It's a great idea Dan uh, any any other questions from you before we wrap things up here
3: I have one question and I I don't believe we quite touched on it you know a lot of creating it's going back to creating bedding areas, but based off of how the the property lays will determine where these um, deer are bedding on certain winds. So, for example, on a piece of property that I hunt, um, the south side of the property is all high ground and then it all drops off on um, as it works its way north down to a Creek and all these little fingers and, um, spurs come off of this huge Valley and it's like, they're pointing North. So the deer like to bed there on a South wind. Now the deer on a North wind aren't really betting there because based off of the terrain, it's, it's not beneficial for them to, to, you know, they don't have the wind advantage Right. If yep. they're betting down at the end of those points, so are you? Are you making betting areas on your property for every wind direction?
4: Um, you know, like your the uh, topography situation you talked about makes it extremely difficult. Probably the only place you could build betting is on the south side, the highest po- the highest point of the property. You know, say if you wanted betting for north wind. And I don't know if you you enter that property from the south side, uh, but, you know, it it, it limits your ability for access. Uh, So if it's not so, uh, if it doesn't have a lot of topography change, then you can really get creative and build uh, multiple bedding locations for different wind directions. But topography can either uh, give you a lot of options or take those options away, depending how it lays. So every property is different.
2: Yeah, and that makes sense, you know, because right, topography is such an influencer of bedding that, if I understand this correctly, Jake, as I'm hearing you say this, in an area with that type of topography, that's going to preempt almost anything else when it comes to where deer will bed, because that's such a highly desirable factor when a deer is deciding where to bed. Versus, let's say you got a flat piece of ground, then the highly desirable features for bedding can be anything you want them to be if you're creating that cover. And so there isn't, exactly. that, there isn't that additional natural influencer that would impact it one way or the other.
4: Yeah, you can literally just, you know, uh, start with a blank slate and say, you know, we're going to put, you know, X number of buck beds here and so many uh, doe beds here. Then we're going to go to the southwest corner and we're going to put buck beds here and doe beds here and we're going to put destination food. And because it's flat ground, they're just going to bed on, say, the north side of the bedding area one day and on the south side of the bedding area Another day, just based on wind, but still bed in the same basic bedding structure, a half-acre hinge cut.
2: Yeah, yeah, that, that's some pretty interesting stuff to me. I love when you start looking at all the tiny variables, like you know, how will wind direction impact where they're bedding? And if I can take that and figure out where I think they're betting, then where do I think they're going to want to feed? And based on that, where do I think they're going to, tra- how will they travel from A to B? Yeah. And I get that yeah. kick out of trying to microanalyze. It probably, it's a fault. I probably take it too far and it screws me up more than you it know, helps, um, but it's fun.
4: Maybe one piece of information I can put into this. And I think this, this is more about pressured deer than non-pressured deer, but, many of my bedding areas and food plot locations as far as what i would call pa- deer pattern movements where you would expect deer to move are based on deer bedding in a uh, being in a particular bedding area and as they start moving towards the food they're going to want the wind somewhat in their face that doesn't mean they go directly into the wind okay but it often means they're going to quarter into the wind they they want you know They're in a bedding area, and so they want to be able to detect danger, whether that's a coyote, a man, you know, a neighbor's dog. Uh, So a lot of my setups that I do on my own property and I design on client properties are focused on, you know, that northwest wind, cold front, and here's, you know, here's the bedding location, here's the food plot, so this is where your stand is going to be set. And then what you call the fair weather, your west-southwest wind, and so we're going to have a bedding area over here and a food plot over here. And so you would completely change the location of hunting maybe two days in a row if the wind changes from the northwest cold and then it goes back to, you know, your fair weather conditions.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Interesting to to go into each of those different you know, behavioral tendencies based on factors of weather.
4: I mean, like there's weather. so many facets of this. That we could go on forever. We could turn this into a, a 100-hour <laughs> podcast
0: you
2: know (laughs) there's always the risk of that that's for sure yeah yeah yeah. so i guess what i'm gonna have to do jake is is try to wrangle you around for coffee sometimes so i can continue to pick your brain about this stuff without the risk of a hundred hour podcast there you go
4: I uh, I, i would encourage you to uh when you do get back to michigan and before it's hunting season, reach out to me, and I'll give you a tour.
2: That would be awesome. And speaking speaking of that, you know what you're doing with your own property and elsewhere. For those that do want to learn more from you, um, or get a hold of you about you know what you're doing from a, from a work standpoint, whether it be real estate or habitat cons- consultations, how can they find how can they find you online, or how can they get a hold of you?
4: Well, my habitat business is uh, habitat solutions three hundred and sixty And I've got some free videos there and a lot of information on that website. And uh, that would be everything from habitat management to improving and developing a property. And from a real estate uh, listing or selling standpoint, you'd want to reach me at, uh, you can go to the whitetailproperties.com website and go to uh, Michigan Agent Finder. And you'll be able to find me right there. And my email and my contact information is right there available
2: for just one click away. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to include those links too in the blog post for this podcast if anyone's interested. So, Jake, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, I definitely got a kick out of this, and I think a lot of our listeners did too.
4: Well, thank you, Mark. Amen. I, uh, it was an honor to speak with you guys.
2: Absolutely. Well, let's stay in touch, Jake, and good luck this season. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much.
4: All right. Yep. See you. Yep, bye-bye.
2: And with that, we are going to wrap up this episode number 111. Before we go, though, we do need to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. And we need to thank you all for you know taking a listen to these occasional advertisements and supporting these companies that have been so helpful for us to make this podcast a reality. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, ozonics carbon express maven optics and the whitetail institute of north america and finally most importantly thank you all for spending some time with us here today for listening to this episode hopefully you found jake's advice interesting and helpful and of course we hope until next time you'll stay wired to hunt
0: Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.